It is usual in democracies for voters to weary of a particular leader after they've been in office more than a few years. It is probably more common for leaders who have been in office more than a few years to deserve that weariness. They get tired just as their people get tired of them. These are among the better arguments for presidential term limits. Ahead of Indonesia's presidential and parliamentary election on February 14th, however, a good many Indonesians, very much including President Joko Widodo, may be wishing they'd given term limits a swerve when their constitution was last reformed. Widodo, better known as Jokowi, has served his maximum of two five-year terms, but remains extraordinarily popular, with approval ratings that confirm him as a remarkably unifying figure in a country of perhaps 275 million people, 18,000 islands, at least 800 languages, and more than a 1,000 ethnic groups. But however little anybody in Indonesia wants a new president, Indonesia, Earth's third largest democracy and its biggest Muslim country, will choose a new president. Polls suggest that it will likely be the man Jokowi beat twice, who is running with Jokowi's son as his putative veep. How has Jokowi managed to leave Indonesia wanting more? How will his successor follow this proverbially tough act? And what are the issues which will decide this election? This is The Foreign Desk. I think the key to Jokowi's success is just been laser-focused on the economy and improving people's you know, quality of lives and making sure they've got more money in their pockets. And they feel that. There's a sense of optimism in Indonesia that you don't get in the West. You know, they do feel like tomorrow is going to be better than today and they are going to have a few more rupiah than they did yesterday. Anis Baswedan is trying to walk away from that identity of being too conservative, too Islamist, i.e. only advising Islamic ideology, which doesn't sell very well in Indonesian national politics. So being Islamic is not being Islamist. Indonesia is in many ways a leader within ASEAN and certainly seen as a champion of democracy within ASEAN. And that is why Indonesia's regression, democratic regression, is a real problem. And I do wonder whether old Prabowo will resurface when it comes to dealing with a more dynamic and contested international environment. Joining me now from Bangkok for a look at the legacy Jokowi bequeaths is James Chambers, Monocle's Asia editor, who interviewed the outgoing president for Monocle. James, first of all, set a scene for us. Where and when did you meet Jokowi? Well, Jokowi has granted us at Monocle two interviews, actually, one during his first term with my uh, colleague Gwen Robinson in one of his palaces in Jakarta, and the second time was with me, and I flew down to a place called Labuan Bajo, which is a bit east of Bali, and we met and had an interview on board a Finnessee sailing boat on the way to the Komodo Islands, which obviously are famous for their dragons. So it was probably one of the bizarrest and, and most fabulous interviews that I've ever done on the deck under the sun, one-on-one with Jokowi, with almost half of his cabinet along for the ride, sitting alongside us on a table, having a great time. What sense do you get of him up close? Is he one of those, it turns out what you see is what you get kind of politicians? Or is, is there a public persona quite at odds with what you find when you meet him? No, I think when you meet him, he is as you would expect. He's very 
easygoing, but he is also very aware of his image. I guess that could be surprising to some people. He has, you know, built up this image of his from his roots in, in central Java as a businessman rising to the top of politics. It's not been by accident. And even though he enjoys his reputation of his, as a humble man, he is a very good politician. He is very clever and he, he is aware of how he can you know, use his image and use the media. It's often interesting when, again, when you get up close to national leaders or very senior politicians, what it is they actually want to talk about rather than what questions you've come with, what seems to excite and animate them. Did it strike you that he had any pet subjects or themes or preoccupations? Indonesia, Indonesia and Indonesia. Um, I mean, he is Indonesia first. Uh, He has this very smart kind of policy that he doesn't give interviews to anyone outside of Indonesia. If you want to talk to him, you have to go to see him and he will take you to places around Indonesia. So Indonesia gets coverage. And so, you know, even though it was great for me to be able to fly to Labuan Bajo, you know, he he was trying to show off his country to an international audience. So even though he's not interested in you know international affairs so much, he does want the world to come to Indonesia. He does want the world to see his country, and he does want to improve his country. And so, you know, his thing is building up Indonesia, building up tourism, building up infrastructure, and raising up the economy. I mean, he does leave office with these absolutely astonishing approval ratings. And normally, by the time somebody has been in charge in any democracy for as long as he has been, voters are usually entirely happy to see the back of him. But if polls are any guide, they would vote him in again in a heartbeat if they could. He he ranks north of 75% approval. Is it possible to quantify, and this is a question I'm sure many other democratic leaders around the world are asking, what his secret is? is. When you're with him and you go around the country, there are crowds screaming. But then again, those can be manufactured. But it does feel genuine with him. He does feel like a man of the people. And he did start as one of these politicians who was famous for going out on these grand kind of walkabouts to meet the people. I think the key to Jokowi's success has been this, it's just been laser focused on the economy and improving people's you know quality of lives and making sure they've got more money in their pockets. And he was fortunate enough uh, to come to power at a time when the Indonesian economy has been doing very well relative, especially to the rest of the world. So, you know, even though the world has seen major crises over the last 10 years when Jokowi has been in power, he's done, you know, very, very well on the economy. The economy is still doing well. Indonesians are getting richer and richer, and they feel that. There's a sense of optimism in Indonesia that you don't get in the West. You know, they do feel like tomorrow is going to be better than today, and they are going to have a few more rupiah than they did yesterday. His his management of covid wasn't the best, a bit like they say about Boris Johnson. He wasn't a man for a crisis like that because he wants to be out there meeting people and building things and getting things done. But, you know, he managed to, I guess, recover after that. And you're right, Indonesians would certainly vote him in for a third term if that was allowed. And I think Mr. Jokowi would would obviously like to stay on for a third term as well. Did it strike you that he had a particular vision for, and this is something we will come back to with our panel later in the show, but that he had a particular idea of Indonesia's place on the world stage? Because it is a huge country. It is economically, strategically, diplomatically, culturally important. And yet quite a lot of the time we don't hear all that much from it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, Indonesia as a country, you know, it's one of these countries that was kind of put together after colonialism. And so a lot of the focus of the nationalist leaders that have ruled the country since its independence has been, you know, building this nation or forming a nation out of these, you know, hundreds of islands. And in no sense, you know, Jokowi has been a continuation of that. You know, he's been, you know, trying to build up the Indonesian economy and make people richer, but he's also been trying to bind them around this concept of being Indonesian. A lot of Indonesia is dominated by one island called Java, where all the leaders come from, about half the population is based, and it dominates the economy. That's where Jakarta is. And part of his goal is to kind of push some of that power away from Java and build up, you know, this new capital that he's building, Nusantara. So, you know, even though I think the world would like to hear more from one of the largest democracies in the world and the largest Muslim country in the world, the focus still in Indonesia is building up the nation. James, thank you. That was Monocle's Asia editor, James Chambers. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Joining me now from Jakarta is Professor Dewi Fortuna Anwar of the Indonesian Institute of Sciences and Chair of the Institute for Democracy and Human Rights at the Habibi Centre, a think tank based in Jakarta. Dewi formerly served as Deputy Secretary to the Vice President of Indonesia from 2010 to 2015. And joining me from Perth is Dr Jackie Baker, Principal Fellow at Murdoch University's Indo-Pacific Research Centre and a lecturer in Southeast Asian politics. Jackie also hosts the podcast Talking Indonesia. Welcome both. I want to start by looking in turn at each of the three candidates most likely to be Indonesia's next president, and by way of doing that, playing some clips of how they have been trying to sell themselves on social media. We're going to hear, first of all, from the frontrunner, Prabowo Subianto. Bicara kayak profesor. Jadi gini 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 gini. Kalau profesor gini. Ya. Aku juga bisa kayak profesor. Saudara-saudara sekalian. Well, the crowd liked it. Dewi, first of all, for the benefit of our listeners whose Indonesian isn't all that it might be, what did we just hear there? Well, in that clip, Prabowo is making fun of Anis, who is the only one with a PhD and is an intellectual. What he's trying to say is that, you know, do you want someone who is too theoretical and so on? Prabowo has been seen as somebody who is very firm, straight talk and so on. But what he's trying to convey is that he says the truth, you know, straight talk, put it that way. Maybe not necessarily elegantly put or too highbrow. So he's in fact not very kindly, but putting down professors. Well, try not to take that too personally. Jackie, this is, of course, Prabowo's third swing at this. He was defeated, in fact, by Jokowi in 2014 and 2019. But he is very much a known quantity in Indonesia. Is he trying to remake himself, remodel himself? Is this a different Prabowo from the one that Indonesians have had some idea of now for decades? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly the point here, Andrew, with that clip, that not only is he kind of mocking the kind of stiffer upper echelons of the establishment, but that he's remaking himself as like fun, cuddly uncle who can make lots of jokes at the dinner table. And isn't he so joyous? And this is a massive 180 turnaround from the kind of Proboa that we saw in previous campaigns, the hardline nationalist up on the stump, talking conspiracy theories about how Indonesia was is being stripped of its natural resources, of how Indonesia's sovereignty is constantly at risk. He has remade himself as a cute, happy uncle. And we really see that around the country with these new campaign posters, which are a sort of an animated cartoon character, Prabowo. And people are talking about Prabowo Gamoy, which is kind of a word for like cute animation Prabowo. And this is having a great impact with the voters. Dewey, is anybody still concerned about those aspects of Prabowo's career, certainly as a soldier, which are very much no laughing matter? He was implicated very plausibly in assorted atrocities. He has at various times in his career been banned from visiting the United States and Australia. Does everyone just now regard this as ancient history? Does anybody still talk about this? Oh, yes, definitely. Not everybody is sold on the reinvention of Prabo or the rebranding of Prabo as this cute, peace-loving guy, soft-spoken and so on. There are still a lot of criticisms from civil society activists and so on. But clearly, looking at the numbers, the policy of sticking as close to Jokowi as possible and getting Jokowi's endorsement and the Jokowi effect Prabo has earned a respectability. You know, it's more or less whitewashed all of that dark past, put it that way, at least among a lot of new supporters, particularly among the young people. Don't forget that Prabo is a very strong contender. In 2014, he was the only contender against Jokowi, and he won quite respectably. So even without the Jokowi effect, you know, he already has quite a massive following in Indonesia. But now, you know, with the Jokowi endorsement, he has toned down his rhetoric. So he's no longer as anti-China as he was. You know, he didn't talk about conspiracy theory. He will no longer talk about selling out national interests to foreign countries. And he keeps saying that you know, he will follow Jokowi's policy, that he's the true heir of the Jokowi's legacy. And that seems to paper over, you might say, you know, some of the earlier blocks on his uh, reputation. Well, polls do have Prabowo favourite to eventually win this thing, but we should move along to the contenders. Here is a clip of one of them. Kita juga menyaksikan ada yang menolak ini, yang hidup dari ketimpangan ini, yang justru merasakan kekuasaan dari ketimpangan ini. Itu yang akan kami lawan, tapi kami tidak melawan dengan kebencian, kami tidak melawan dengan rasa ketidaksukaan. Kami akan membawa ini dengan spirit Surodiro Joyodiningrat, Lepurdining Pangastuti, Bersegala Angkara Murka akan kalah oleh kebaikan. Dewi, who will we hearing from there? That's uh, Anis Baswedan. He highlights the economic inequality that despite all this economic development, despite the rapid economic growth, big infrastructure projects and, you know, Jokowi's policy of downstreaming and so on, you know, there's still a lot of inequality in Indonesia. And he appeals also, you know, he uses the uh, Arabic Islamic terms here, talking about fighting injustice and not with hate, he said, you know, but, you know, we're working together to deliver, you know, a more just and prosperous society.
Jackie, he appears to be positioning himself as, well, very much the, the anti jacoey candidate in this race. Are there many votes in that, though? Presumably he can read the same polls as everybody else can. I think if Jokowi was able to run for another term, he would probably win it quite handily. That's an excellent point. The fact is that Jokowi's popularity rankings have been upwards of 70 plus, if not in the 80s, for the past two years. And that gives him an enormous electoral dividend. It gives him a cache of votes that he can bestow upon his next heir, which has been Jokowi. And so this means that running for the candidate of change gives you a really limited agenda. But nonetheless, there is quite a few people who probably regard themselves as the losers of the Jokowi administration, as people who are unhappy with the way things have been going. And more importantly, people who have often been burnt by the Jokowi administration find themselves clustering or coalescing around the Anis Bus waiting campaign. I think it's not a very successful strategy, but it's really the only strategy in town for a candidate like Anis Baswaden, whose conflict with Jokowi, the president, is long-standing and very, very deep and very bitter. Dewi, he is obviously courting the Islamist vote. I'd be interested if you could explain for us a bit about how big a factor religion is in Indonesian politics. Does that bring him along an automatic block of observant voters or are there plenty of religious Indonesian Muslims who are quite happy to vote for a more secular candidate? Well, in fact, Islam is not as much of an issue in the next election as it was before. Uh, say, in 2014, 2019, where Prabowo was identified as somebody who the Islamists voted for. And this time, the Islamic vote is divided. And I think we have to be very careful here, not Islamists, because Anis Baswedan is trying to walk away from the identity of being too conservative, too Islamist, i.e. only advising Islamic ideology, which doesn't sell very well in Indonesian national politics. So being Islamic is not being Islamist. And if you notice that his running mate is somebody from Nahdlatul Ulama, Mohammed Iskandar, is chair of the National Awakening Party, which is associated with Nahdlatul Ulama, which is a more traditional, moderate party. So uh, Nahdlatul Ulama is not associated with Islamistic or conservative ideology. It's much more moderate, much more inclusive, much more pluralistic. During elections, everybody goes to Pesantren try to quote the votes from all of the KIs and so on. You know, So everybody is playing that game. Well, just before we move on to a couple of more general discussions of the election and the issues that might decide it, let's hear from the third contender. Saya waktu mahasiswa lebih banyak kalau malam mingguan naik gunung. Dulu biasanya... Naik Gunung Merapi, kadang-kadang Lawu, sekitar Jawa Tengah yang dekat gitu ya, Sindoro Sumbing, Gunung Selamat, atau kalau tidak nongkrong di rumah Mbah Marijan waktu itu. Jackie, who was that being fanfared there with the blast of impeccable mid-80s synth pop? That's Ganja Pranowo, the current governor of central Java, once seen as the heir to the Jokowi presidency and once seen as his pick for the presidency, but has really fallen in the polls as Jokowi's fallen out of favour with Ganjar. Ganjar himself was seen as a sort of student activist. He was seen as the kind of man about town, the everyday man, a man who joined Indonesia's largest party or currently its largest party, Indonesian struggle, 
And he is a kind of a born and bred cadre of that party who was for some time in coalition with Jokowi, but who now is in a very uncomfortable relationship. So in some ways, poor Ganjar, who was once seen as the heir to the Jokowi presidency, had now is sort of lacking a campaign identity. He is neither fish nor fowl. He can't position himself as the opposition to Jokowi, given his party's previous support for Jokowi in the current government. And he can't position himself as a candidate for change. For this reason, we've seen his numbers absolutely collapse in the polls. I want to move on to a couple of thoughts about the election more generally. And Dewi, given that you're in Jakarta and obviously right at the centre of it, it's obviously very hard to talk in general terms about something like an Indonesian election, which is you know this extraordinary logistical enterprise occurring across dozens, hundreds of islands, any number of ethnic and linguistic groups, you know, getting one of the most diverse countries on earth to vote at once. But nevertheless, a lot of foreign reporting of this election has stressed a certain frivolity, that it is all being conducted through gimmicky social media stuff. Is that entirely fair? In fact, there's something much more serious than that. A lot of universities, campuses, professors, lecturers, you know, democracy activists, academics have all spoken because we are very worried, not about gimmicky issues, but about the problems of legitimacy of this election. We haven't paid attention to the fact that Prabowo's running mate is Jokowi's son, Gibran Rakabuming Raka, whose qualification to run was achieved through what was called ethical malfeasance. Because according to the uh, law of you know, Indonesian election law, you have to be a minimum at least 40 years of age to qualify to run for president. And Gibran is only 36. So there are a number of Gibran supporters who took the issue to the constitutional court in which at the time, the chief justice is an uncle by marriage of Gibran. Usman Anwar is married to Jokowi's sister. So there's a very visual, blatant conflict of interest, you know. To cut a long story short, when it was said that, you know, if you are under 40, all the judges said, you know, you cannot run. But then they include a language. If you are under 40, but you have actually won an elected office as a regional head, then you are qualified. And the deciding vote was cast by the uncle, by the chief justice. Uh, so there is a real conflict of interest. There's an uproar about this. An ethnic commission was formed who found that that decision was rife with conflict of interest and actually dismissed the chief justice from his post. So there is an issue of legitimacy here. And then the election commission simply accepted the ruling from the constitutional court and accepted Gibran's candidacy. And only a few days ago, the ethic commission of the um, elections organizers issued an ethic ruling against the chair of the election commission, dismissing him, in fact, because of the failure to inform parliament before this. So now, you know, we are concerned. Jackie, just as a final thought, and with all due acknowledgement that I'm sure it's as true in Indonesia as anywhere else that foreign policy doesn't decide elections, does it strike you that there has been much discussion of that or that there is much difference in the approach of the main three candidates? Because it does often strike us, and granted we're a long way away, that for all its absolutely colossal heft, uh, the size of its population, its economic and cultural power, Indonesia treads pretty softly 
on the world stage. I mean, it's certainly been my own experience when I've been in Australia reading Australian media that you would barely know it was there. I think that's probably an unfair characterisation that is very shaped by our own very Western-centric views. <laughs> I mean, when you think about Indonesia as chairman of ASEAN, for instance, it recently stepped down from that position. Indonesia played an incredibly important role in terms of raising issues around Myanmar and the Rohingya refugees, around raising issues around Gaza. Indonesia is in many ways a leader within ASEAN and certainly seen as a champion of democracy within ASEAN. And that is why Indonesia's regression, democratic regression, is a real problem for the region more broadly. I think you're right, of course, foreign policy never really ranks very highly in terms of a policy issue for voters. But I do wonder what kind of foreign policy we will see under a Prabowo presidency. While Prabowo is jollying up to the voters, giggling like a happy uncle, he does have a tendency to revert to very stump speech, hyper-nationalistic slogans when he is face-to-face with voters. And I do wonder whether old Prabowo will resurface when it comes to dealing with a more dynamic and contested international environment. And what that will look like is anybody's guess. While he might be currently very conducive to a kind of neoliberal international investment environment, that could change very quickly when, as he's currently 30 points ahead in the polls, when Prabowo is likely to step into the chair of the presidency in October 2024, things will change radically. Professor Dewi Fortuna Anwar and Dr Jackie Baker, thank you both very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. It was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Thanks also to Carlotta Ribello for research assistance and Lily Austin, who produced this week's Foreign Desk Explainer. We're also excited to announce that the Foreign Desk team will be attending the upcoming Munich Security Conference next week. Monocle will be hosting a cocktail event on the 15th of February for our valued listeners and subscribers in Munich. If you would like to join us, please contact Emma at es at monocle.com for further information. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.